0: I'm
1: Lara Holman. And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Thanks very much for joining us. We've got some fantastic interviews for you this week, and excitingly, again, another new co-host. This has been like Christmas every other episode we've had a new a new person to talk to which is lovely and today I'm delighted to be sharing this episode with Lara Hallman from the Global Health Programme at Chatham House. Lara how are you doing? Thanks for joining us.
0: Hi thanks for having me yeah I'm doing well how are you Ben?
1: I'm well yeah I'm pretty good it's been a busy week obviously here in In London with the UK government releasing its integrated review of all kind of international affairs issues so there's been a lot of work around reading that so even just getting through it 120 page report is (laughs) there's a lot to get through but I've just been meaning to ask
0: If you've managed to read the full thing, I've only read the health bits so far.
1: Do you have any reflections?
0: (laughs) Um, They're not necessarily, the rhetoric is not always meeting the actions, but I'm sure it's coming in the next few years.
1: But anyway, why don't you tell us a bit about your job at Chatham House and the sorts of projects you work on?
0: Yeah, I'm a research analyst at the Global Health Programme and the Centre for Universal Health. So the centre focuses on the political economy of health and improving governance in global health. We work on issues including uh, universal health coverage, um, global health security and healthy societies. So me specifically, I work on health security issues that arise at the human, animal and environment interface. Zoonotic disease outbreaks would be one of them. So pandemic preparedness definitely has featured in the last 12 months, but also before that.
1: Awesome, awesome. And uh, we had your boss, Rob Yates, the director from the Centre for Universal Healthcare, just a few episodes ago speaking about vaccine nationalism. So if, if people are interested in hearing more about the Global Health Programme's work, then I'd recommend going and downloading that one as well. But um, on to today's episode. So we've got two interesting interviews, which kind of have resonances in in some ways between the two, even though that wasn't really intended. So First off, you're going to hear an interview that, that I did with Philip Stevens, who's a columnist for the Financial Times, and who has just written a book called Britain Alone, which is about the history of British foreign policy between the Suez crisis in the 1950s, all the way up to Brexit, which is a period that obviously focuses on on the effects of the dismantling of the British Empire and Britain's attempts since to kind of work out what its role is on the global stage. But then Laura, you're also touching on issues around empire and decolonization in your interview as well. So why don't you tell us a bit about who you spoke to and what you discussed?
0: Exactly. So I spoke to two of our associate fellows at Chatham House, Dr. Michelle Khan and Dr. Ngozi Arandu. So Michelle is an associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and as well at the Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan. Ngozi is a senior scholar at Georgetown University Law Center, and the chief executive of Poitiers & And both are very active and involved in the decolonizing global health space. So it was just a fantastic conversation we've had. Decolonizing global health aims to advance the paradigm shift. So linking to what you've said, this dismantling of where we've come from, what is the colonial legacy and the historical power structures that continue to be visible within the field. So we've just chatted about what does that actually mean for everyday practice in public and global health? How has it manifested during the pandemic? How can we make populations aware of this? And overall, how can we make global health more equitable, fair, inclusive and diverse?
1: Lovely stuff. Let's have a listen.
0: when we speak about decolonizing global health or the need to decolonize global health, what is it we're talking about? Or as a recent Lancet Global Health editorial asked, what's wrong with global health?
2: Thanks, Lara. It's a really good question. I think first is thinking about like, what is global health and where does global health come from? When we were in the colonial times, when specifically Great Britain colonized much of Africa and you know Southeast Asia or India, specifically, and also you know France and Spain and Portugal were like just colonizing everywhere, they had a lot of their citizens that were either running the the colonies or working in the colonies. They were you know dying of different tropical diseases. You come from, a place like Britain where, you know, you barely see the sun and the weather is just completely different from the places that they were occupying. And so they needed a program really in place to protect themselves. And that's where the term tropical medicine comes into play. And so you know, fast forward to today or fast forward to post 1960, where, you know, a lot of these colonies have gotten their, their freedom, or they've been liberated from the folks who colonized them. And there's still a lot of these relationships, you know, England has the commonwealth that includes a lot of African countries, India, um, Canada, other places. I mean, there's layers of relationships. But if we just talk about health, historically, global health, or was started as international health, now that it's global health, it, it is really encompassed a lot of what was happening um, in colonial times. So, people coming from like mostly white, wealthier countries to do research, to understand and protect their own people, now doing research to understand and protect people all around the world, but it's not an equitable partnership. So, a lot of Western doctors train in some of these post colonial countries, a lot of uh, Western scientists or researchers do the same. A lot of studies happen on populations in these post-colonial countries, and that in itself is not wrong. Again, what's what's not good, what's not helpful is that this is not an equitable relationship. So- even today in 2021, we have research institutions that will run programs in, in countries, but not have any senior leadership in the countries that they're running these programs on. We have research projects and papers that get written about countries um, with no representation from the people in those countries. And so when we think of global health, you know, a lot of people from the West think of global health outside. I think of global health as happening in other places, and there's been quite a bit written about that. And really what global health should be, you know, health happening in different places, certain certain science should be generalizable, some is more localized, but it really needs to be either equitable or locally led. And at the moment, we do not see that throughout global health.
0: Thank you, Ngozi. Michelle, so how does this impact, for example, patients or populations health, especially in populations in the global south, for example, through clinical care or the domestic health agenda setting. So what are concrete harms that we can see from this practice and unequitable partnership?
3: Yeah, Laura, thanks. So as Ngozi said, when there's this idea of external experts as they would like to think of themselves, or external forces imposing priorities or ways of making change onto other populations, a lot of harm can occur. The first is, and probably this is the most benign, is that the local priorities aren't given the weight that they should be given. And this either happens because funding divert, comes from external agencies and those funders have their own priorities. And um, while they're focused on health, they're not necessarily reflecting what the local stakeholders want and a lot of attention and human resources just get diverted. So that's, that's one of the issues. The other is this imposition of the the strategic approaches to dealing with issues. So sometimes it's much more technical than it needs to be. I can give you an example, say, from antimicrobial resistance, which I know is an area that Chatham House Global Health Programme is also really active in. The idea that we should be focusing on, say, surveillance or the development of new drugs versus reducing infection by investing in water and sanitation, who makes those decisions? Because when you speak to people in countries, they have a very different idea about what is a sustainable investment to be made. So in some, it's it's this the external imposition of money and therefore ideas can really sort of silence the voice and expertise that does exist locally.
0: Thank you. So picking up, Funders seem to have a really strong power. Funders usually sit in the global north. So how do we broaden the global north public's understanding of this issue? So often in the global north, global health aid is just conflated with charity work. And they in Africa should be grateful for this, which because aid is always a good thing, which it isn't. But that's not the topic of the podcast. The same people with that mentality are also casting votes for current and future governments that are holding the purse strings in global health. So how do we break down the importance of decolonizing global health, the importance of equitable partnerships and pushing for health as a fundamental right on all levels to the citizen in the global north who do not see those repercussions you've mentioned on an everyday basis? And Gozi, if you want to have a first crack at that.
2: Yeah, I think that it's an interesting question because I can understand how someone wouldn't in their everyday life think through the implications of global health. But I think the first thing that I would offer is that global health has been mutually beneficial to the global north and the global south. As I said at the beginning, you know, careers have literally been created and built because of global north individuals Uh, learning from and working with individuals in the global south and you know we're just using you know this binary global north global south but we're really talking about like wealthy countries and low and middle income countries or you know you can categorize them in different ways and while I am not um, a fan. I'm sure Michelle is not either for like, you know, parachute science and things like that. But There there are benefits that come from working together on, you know, using knowledge and experience and understanding from different places and, and bringing that together to, to solve issues that hurt all of us. You know, when you think of infectious diseases, it has nothing to do with nationality or ethnicity. It can affect all of us as we see from COVID-19. Also, wealthy Western countries for decades have been using global health as soft diplomacy. They have been, you know, using aid and research and all these different ways to really form stronger relationships with countries all around the world. You know, we, we are used to looking at things as global north and global south. But if we look at after World War II and how countries came in to aid Germany with strengthening its economy and its system, it's the same thing. And even till today, because of Those policies that were put in place then, Germany has stronger ties to the US, to France, to places all around the world. There's also an important understanding that I think this new generation has, or the you know, millennials and and people behind us are coming, that diversity and representation matter full stop. That having just one perspective and understanding of, of the world is not really helpful and it has often gotten us into a lot of trouble. So, you know, global health matters, it's really not a case of charity at all. But If we just look at COVID-19 and how Global South has really pioneered some of the innovations and uh, interventions in protecting their communities and how now the United States, for example, has seen the strength of community health workers and has really tried to expand that, where that's been happening in Southeast Asia and Africa for for years, you know what I mean? So understanding that these different insights and perspectives and experiences make all of us better is also a good way to uh, think of global health.
0: Ngozi, what is parachute science, just for those listeners of ours that are not aware of that term?
2: Parachute science is when scientists from different countries, from mostly the West, <laughs> drop into a country to do research. They extract the data. It's a, it's a lot about extracting, extracting data, extracting experiences or information, and then going back to their country and analyzing that and just doing publications. So it really is not rooted in equity. It's not rooted in sustainability. And it's not rooted to what Michelle said which is uh, local priorities. So that's how I would define parachute science.
0: Um, Great. Michelle, would you like to add something on the public understandings question?
2: Yeah,
3: really, really interesting discussion going on. I mean, I would go as far as to say that in higher income countries, there's a large chunk of the population that's actually being misled about what global health is and what it's achieving. And I think that that's problematic for everyone. So I would say just we should start with having a really honest conversation about what is actually going on with global health. And then people can decide whether they they want to be giving this sort of quote-unquote charity or not. And I don't think that it's really the moral obligation per se of nations to have to help out if they don't want to, it's fine. But let's not assume that we are. I mean, I can give you a couple of examples. One that happened during COVID-19 was a lot in the press about debt relief to lower-income countries, and there's all this thing about, you know, all these loans that are being delayed. And and while that is true, and they're being delayed so that countries that that have high debts can invest in COVID-19 control, which is going to help us all, but the delays that are being granted by these richer countries come with the interest payments that countries have to pay are just stacking up. So it's not like an interest-free loan period. It is, sure, you can delay paying us, but when you do have to pay us in two years' time, you're going to have to pay us more. So there's that level of lack of solidarity while on the same time we're having these debates about should we be giving more aid? And part of me wants to say, well, okay, don't give any more aid, but can you not find it in yourself to give like a six-month interest-free loan period? I appreciate that whenever there's There's loans, somebody has to give up money. But I I just think it's important for the public to realize that the the kinds of relationships that are at stake here and the inequities in power means that certain countries have been made poorer through extractive policies and are now having to pay back on loans and are then being asked to make a decision between investing in COVID-19 control or being really pressured into investing in COVID-19 control so that it helps us all, but at the same time also being told that if they make these sensible decisions to invest in COVID-19 control, they're going to have to pay back rich countries even more for these sensible decisions.
0: Thank you. I think, yes, Ngozi mentioned it as well, COVID-19, a lot has changed in the last 12 months on the agenda for global health. So how have the colonial power structures manifested themselves during the pandemic? So what are concrete examples on where we've seen asymmetric power structures making COVID most likely even worse than it could have been, or where we've seen a change in narrative, where we've seen a harmful discourse in the past 12 months happening?
2: So I will happily give an example of each. I'll try to be brief. (laughs) The first one, um, I think we have definitely see the inequity and in the power dynamics with wealthy countries and poorer countries when it comes to vaccine distribution. You know, uh, last year, WHO and other kind of large players got together and developed this Covax platform, which really was to be able to pull funds together for poorer countries and secure vaccines so that they will be protected when that came. And the world came together, um, and we have several vaccines that are effective and that can really save people, but what everyone kind of suspected and, you know, a lot of people wrote about um, before, was that what was going to happen is there was going to be a vaccine hoarding from rich countries. And that's exactly what happened. Even though this COVAX mechanism has come together and negotiated prices with pharmaceutical companies, richer countries are buying more doses than they actually need. And they're undercutting those negotiated prices so that they can have even more vaccine. So even though, you know, there definitely needs more funding for COVAX, but even with the funds in place, Kenya, for example, is saying that they'll have 30% Of their population vaccinated by 2022 or 2023, whereas the U.S. President Biden just said that by the end of May, all the vulnerable populations—first of all, they'll have enough doses for everyone, and the vulnerable populations uh, should be vaccinated—and that's a huge disparity. And I think the biggest issue there: one, it's it's inhumane and it's against human rights and equality and all of that. But also, it keeps everybody uh, more vulnerable to COVID-19. We see these variants without everybody being protected or there being a level of herd immunity across the world, we're going to continue having variants that could easily bypass the vaccines that we have now or that we have in the future. And then on the other end of what narratives have actually changed, I think now that we have a disease that has affected or a virus that has affected the entire world at the same time we haven't had the rich countries and western countries have not have had the luxury or the opportunity to just send their scientists in and like kind of save the day that kind of white savior mentality hasn't been able to be applied in this situation because they had to take care of their own homes and we saw that the poorer countries, browner countries, blacker countries, they didn't dissolve into chaos. They were able to fend for themselves. They were able to look at global guidance and customize it to their own populations. Uh, they were able to, with the resources that they had, act early to implement interventions and to communicate with their populations. So I think that should be a, a story that is highlighted more to really show that, you know, black and brown countries can take care of themselves.
0: So- Clearly, high-income countries potentially should have learned a lesson from what Ngozi said. Variants are going to happen. We're only safe until we're all safe. This is the narrative that the WHO has been pushing. Yet we see the vaccine hoarding that has been covered by another episode, if anybody is interested in that. We have a very extensive interview on that as well. So have high-income leaders learned the lessons long-term? Will we change our practices? Will we you know, some lower middle income countries, especially African countries, have outperformed all expectations. They have done much better than some high income countries. So will we have learned our lesson? Will this actually foster more equitable partnership and an equal change of knowledge maybe between different types of countries? Michelle, what do you think?
3: At the moment, I have to say I'm a bit skeptical because there's one thing which is there being evidence that there is a lot to learn in both directions. But there's also the incentives at play in terms of wanting to change. And it's not just in global health, it's even for human behavior, sometimes having the knowledge doesn't actually lead to a behavior change. In this case, if the systems are set up such that it works better to assume that expertise is held in the West, then that's how it's going to keep going. Because you want those experts to be in certain positions, and are they going to willingly give up those positions, even if there is evidence? I think we really need to make the case in an effective way. Justice is is one argument, but it's when a justice argument comes up against people actually having to give up power, it's not always effective. And I would instead say that it's also worth considering what the richer or higher income countries have to lose by not making this shift. And one of the losses is that there are blind spots in their strategies. And this idea that even when we're making the case, as you said, Lara, that nobody's safe until everybody's safe, there's this implicit message within that, which is, and the people who are making us unsafe are these poorer countries. It's happened with COVID, it's happened with AMR, it's happened with infectious disease from the beginning, that the threat is going to come from them. And therefore, we as the experts in richer countries need to go and sort out the, the mess that's in these other countries. And that's that myth is really damaging. A, it means that people don't learn from poorer countries when they have a lot to teach. The other uh, way it's damaging is they often, as COVID has shown, have an overinflated sense of their own level of advancement. As we've seen, You know, the Global Health Security Index is a really good example of having the US and the UK sort of number one and number two. And we've seen that it hasn't played out. And when these sorts of assessments are being done, if there was more of an equitable voice of other countries, you might have had a, a more nuanced assessment rather than an echo chamber of, of people sort of patting themselves on the back which is apart from being injustice also led the uk and the us to not being as prepared as they might have been thank you
0: just picking up global health security index what does that index measure global health security but could you explain that
3: it was a measure that was put together using assessments that the WHO had conducted. And basically, in, in you know, to put it really simply, it was a measure of how prepared countries are going to be for outbreaks such, such as COVID. And there was a ranking that was produced, and, and what I was referring to is that the UK and the US were ranked at the top, and a lot of countries that are poorer countries were ranked much, much lower, but they've actually done much better. So it shows that some of the assessments that we really invest in aren't effective if we go in with this assumption that certain countries are, are better prepared and others aren't, and the ones that are considered to be less advanced don't even have a voice in those assessments.
0: Thank you. So we're coming towards an end, and I'm you know, keen to maybe end on a solution-oriented question. And we've heard about the barriers, you know, those with power having to give up the power. We've heard about the harm that it does when we have unequitable partnership. So what can be done. So Professor Pai and Professor Boda wrote last year that to transcend its origins or global health must become actively anti-supremacist and also anti-oppressionist and anti-racist. So how do we do this? What are next steps, especially for the high-income countries that need to give up the power? Michelle, you alluded to some of the points already. Would you want to continue on how can global health become more inclusive, more diverse, more equitable, and connect to your previous points?
3: Yes, this is it. I think we mustn't fall into the trap of being naive about this. So I think that those of us who would like to see this change uh, need to do two things that, for me, that are really important. One is to make the argument for it in a very effective way without assuming that just because we're coming from a place of global sort of justice and solidarity that, that that's going to appeal to all organizations organizations want to survive and if organizations in higher income countries will want to keep either having students or having grants, and they're not necessarily going to want to give that up. So to make a case for it that works for all the stakeholders that are involved. So that's that's number one. And the number two is to have specific actions that they can take and have a way of holding organizations to account for those actions that need to be taken. So I think it's We need to move beyond saying this needs to be done and saying why it needs to be done in a way that's convincing, and then how it needs to be done in a way that's actionable.
0: Ngozi, I think you also last year wrote a very strong piece which outlined a few concrete steps in general on how to tackle privilege in global health. You mentioned that be transparent about the selection criteria that we have in this organization try to include the many not just the one and to not instrumentalize and tokenize but linking to the previous question as well that i asked michelle is what are the next steps for you that countries institutions individuals could take
2: yeah like in what you were just reading i was talking a lot about like in the context of academia and research and I really liked what Michelle was saying about making a case, but there's different cases for different groups of people. And so we need people I would just say activist, you know, whether you're a scholar activist or you're a program manager activist or a funding, you know, within all of these institutions are individuals who care a lot about this. You know, we've seen this with all these open letters and these op-eds from like anywhere from MSF to, so Médecins Sans Frontières, which is Doctors Without Borders, and also, you know, USAID, the the U.S. uh, Funding Organization People in these institutions, these historically colonial institutions, they have been there witnessing these really backwards activities and ways of managing uh, organizations and these inequitable partnerships, and they're speaking up. And so I think. Yes, what Michelle said, make a case, but make a case that's really targeted to your organization as an individual, as groups. You know, I think you know there's power in numbers. And so across these institutions, we need you know decolonized global health groups and organizations that can really work from the inside, but we also need people working from the outside. And so I'm excited that really revered scientific journals like you know, Lancet and BMJ Global Health are writing about this and really trying to work externally and, and change the narrative um, and influence research uh, and researchers. So, so I think that's that's really important. And I'll just have to say, like, you know, I always say that individuals, we can peer mentor, we can raise our voice, but institutions are what really change these structural barriers to equity. Institutions are the ones that really perpetuate uh, racism, (laughs) that that perpetuate unfairness. And I, I think that, you know, institutions should be called out and then they should be able to or they should have to really articulate why they're doing things the way they're doing them and how they're going to change them. And we need accountability. So other than, you know, just having people we've seen with them after the murder of George Floyd, a lot of organizations came out to say that they're in support of uh, Black Lives Matter. And even though, you know, colonialization and the decolonized global health is not really the same as Black Lives Matter. Um, There are a lot of intersections. There's a lot of similarities. And so that was an opportunity for like all this decolonized global health to really take a platform as well. Because while we might not only be talking about racism, we're we're talking about prejudice. We're talking about unfairness. A lot of institutions, you know, took that opportunity to say, no, like we're, that's not who we are. We really want to change. But what have they done? you know, like what have they done and what are they doing to make things more equitable? Global health at its core should be about serving humanity, looking at the marginalized majority and seeing how everyone's life can get better by ensuring that their lives are better. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, how are these institutions actually living up to that? So, you know, one thing that myself and Michelle are really interested in are like, what are the metrics? What are the what are the ways that we can actually measure progress to decolonizing a curriculum or decolonizing an institution or decolonizing even the rhetoric, the, the, the way that we speak about other countries when we're talking about health? And so that's something that I think is a very interesting uh, area to go into. And I hope that other people can kind of contribute to that as well. Thank
0: you so much. On that note, I think We'll call it for now, because I know the three of us, we could continue for hours, but I think our listeners have only an hour for their walk nowadays in national lockdown.
1: Okay, so although domestic concerns such as the COVID-19 pandemic continue to dominate our lives and news headlines, 2021 could also turn out to be a pivotal year for developments in UK foreign policy. Uh, A couple of episodes ago, I spoke with Chatham House Director Robin Niblett about how to bring substance to the much-touted Global Britain slogan, and today I'm really delighted to be re-entering this debate from a historical perspective with Philip Stevens. Philip is the Chief Political Commentator at the Financial Times, and his new book, Out Now with Faber and Faber, is titled Britain Alone the path from Suez to Brexit. And in this book, Philip traces 60 years of British foreign policy to understand how successive governments have tried to reconcile the end of the British Empire and the decline of UK hard power with cultural assumptions about the ongoing greatness of Britain. And we're going to be speaking about those themes today. So Philip, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So, It feels a bit like a sort of commonplace, but it's often said that we're living through times of crisis. And before we talk about the various crises that the UK is facing in the present, I wanted to ask you if you could take us back to the crisis which kickstarts your book, the catastrophe that was Suez. And for those of us who haven't studied history for a while, could you tell us a bit about the Suez crisis and what the significance of it was for the UK's standing on the global stage?
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, what the book tries to do is to embed Brexit and recent events in the longer span of history. And if you like, what Britain's been trying to do since the end of the Second World War, which is to find a role in the world which matches rather more straightened circumstances, as it were, that, you know, we're no longer the great power. So where do we fit in in this world? Are we global or European? Mm. Are we Atlanticists? So that, the constant in the story has been this search, one, to align our ambitions with our economic circumstance, and two, to, if you like, reconcile the competing tugs of Commonwealth, Empire, Old Empire, the Atlantic, and Europe. So that's the background. Where Suez fits in is... It's the end of what I would call the sort of first phase of our foreign policy after the Second World War. For the 10 years after the Second World War, most of the ruling classes in Britain, or the political classes, let's call them, certainly Churchill, and certainly to a degree, Attlee and Bevin, thought that we would recover our position. You know, we'd won the war, of course, we'd been bankrupted, but ingenuity, industry, and Britain's, you know, basically our can-do attitude would bring us back, and our position as a great power would be restored. And that was the delusion, I think, for the first ten years, that we were one of what Churchill used to call the big three. We would sit at the same table with the Soviet Union, with the United States, as equals. What Suez did, and this was Suez, was the expedition, uh, the military expedition sent out in harness with, in conspiracy with, you could say, France and Israel, to take back the Suez Canal from Nasser, the Arab nationalist leader of Egypt, uh, who'd seized it in the middle of 1956. And this was to be a demonstration of British power, to prove that we still had the capacity to intervene around the world and set the terms of debate in areas that formerly been part of the informal or formal empire. It was a catastrophic failure, not militarily, but simply because it was conducted in secret without the permission, in fact, against the wishes of the Americans, against the wishes of most of those countries still within the empire or moving into the Commonwealth, and against really the knowledge of most of the people in the government and even in the cabinet Uh, We were forced by the Americans, who effectively said they were going to cut off support for Sterling, to retreat. And it was the end then. I mean, it was the realisation that we were no longer the great power. We simply couldn't operate as we had before the war. So it was at that point where Eden was forced to resign, Macmillan took over, we had to start thinking about, okay, if we're not an equal to the Americans and the Soviet Union. Where do we fit in this new world? Which brought us into then um, the second phase of our, if you like, foreign policy uh, orientation, where we decided that we would be with the Americans. We would stick with the Americans. The route to influence in the world would be through the special relationship, as it was called then and is still called by some people now. And if you like, we would recognise that we were a second-rung power. But even after Suez, that was a very, very uh, tough thing for many of the people who'd gone through the war. And if you like, had assumed that victory meant victory, that we would come out of the war in the same position that we had gone into it.
1: So just to pick you up on the question of the sort of tools that UK leaders since Suez have employed to try to manage this adjustment in the UK's circumstances. I mean, it feels like the story that you tell in the book is is one of managed decline. So obviously, aligning very closely with the US is one way that that decline was kind of mitigated. But you go through a range of other sort of tools that UK foreign policy establishment has employed to continue a certain extent of UK influence in the world. Could you maybe tell us a bit about those other methods?
4: post suez what Harold Macmillan did was take a sort of a very hard-headed look at our capabilities, our capacity, how we could operate in the world. And this was always driven to an extent by the economics. You know, we had 100,000 troops in Germany we had troops across the world, east of Suez and places like Singapore. So there was always a juggling, how much can we afford? But Macmillan's conclusion, and this was set out in a series of very interesting internal papers within the government at the end of the 1950s, was that what we we would be America's best friend, we would support America, and we would influence the United States. We would be, in the phrase that he coined actually during the war, we would be Greeks to America's Rome, we would be the advisor whispering him in the ear of the United States about this is what we should do. And that seemed to work for a period of years in that he did establish a very strong relationship, first with Eisenhower and then with the young Jack Kennedy. We bought the Polaris nuclear missile system uh, from the United States. But if you like, while this was going on, while we were focusing, we were looking across the Atlantic, Europe uh, was doing its thing. And France and Germany were building the common market. They signed the Treaty of Rome. And we'd, we'd, accept, we'd basically brushed off the idea. We thought, well, that's good for them. Mm. Uh, as Churchill would say, you know, we're with Europe, but not of it. We encouraged them, but we would do our own thing. We were above, in one way or another, they'd been invaded or lost the war, we were different. But by the early 60s, it was obvious that this new common market, this new Franco-German enterprise was also going to be very successful. And we'd set up our rival free trade area. When you think of our new trade agreement with the uh, EU now, you can think back to something called EFTA, (laughs) European Free Trade Area, which we tried to set up as a rival to the uh, then European community, but had failed. And so the conclusion that Macmillan drew and subsequent prime ministers was that we couldn't avoid engagement with Europe. If Europe was developing as such an economic power as it was, we had to be part of it and we had to have political influence. So hence came the first application to join the EU, rebuffed by de Gaulle, but 10 years later we were eventually there. And that's where it seemed we had settled our foreign policy. Our foreign policy was essentially built on two pillars, the security relationship with the US through NATO. So we would be America's strongest partner in NATO, and that would guarantee our security and European security. And then we would build the economic relationship and political relationship uh, with the European Union. basically for 40 years although there were stresses and strains and there were always tensions within the two relationships uh, the formula seemed to work because the Americans thought well the Brits have influence in Europe so that makes it more valuable to us and the Europeans thought well the Brits you know can talk candidly and closely to the Americans so we leveraged each relationship the one with the other and it was very stressful at points, and different prime ministers took a diff, you know, struck a different balance. So Edward Heath was very who took us in, was very pro-European and wanted and tended to snub Richard Nixon. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, of course, was you know wanted to dance on the world stage with Ronald Reagan, and had arguments with you. But that was that was the balance we'd struck, yeah. and it was that balance that Brexit basically upended because it blew up the European pillar. And the point of the book, I think, is to say, look, in a way, we're back where we were in the early 1960s, where we were saying, look, we're no longer an empire. We have a close relationship with the Americans, but that's not enough. What are we going to do next? And that's the point we are now. This is, we have to answer the question, what is global Britain? Whenever I hear that phrase, it reminds me of Theresa May after the referendum and being asked about what's brexit Mm. and she said well brexit means brexit (laughs) which of course answered nothing and global britain doesn't answer a question what is global britain what you know what do we now define as our foreign policy interests are there going to be new alliances where are they going to be does embracing the rest of the world I mean leaving Europe behind, even though it's nearly half our trade and investment relationship. So if you like, we are... Dean Acheson, the American Secretary of State after the war famously said in 1962, chided us for being a country, a nation that had lost its empire and failed to find a role. And that's in a way where we are again now. We've We've lost our Europe, the European pillar of our foreign policy. We have still a strong Atlanticist pillar, but perhaps not as strong as America begins to pull back from its global responsibilities. So where do we put ourselves in this world as a, as a significant power? This is not to, you know, this is not to denigrate Britain or to say that we don't have strengths, because we obviously do many strengths whether in the armed forces, our intelligence services, our diplomatic services, or in our ingenuity, our pharmaceuticals industry, biosciences. So we have strengths, but we don't have a strategy. And global Britain, for now, is really an empty phrase.
1: Some people who are trying to bring a bit more meaning to that phrase, global Britain, have speculated about stronger relationships with the Commonwealth and the former members of the British Empire and I just wondered whether you give any credence to that as a sort of viable avenue for sort of new relationships and also maybe reflecting on the situation that Britain was in 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 the 60s as you as you outlined how did the UK foreign policy establishment think about its relationship with its former colonies at that point And, and are there any lessons that we can draw from that time for now?
4: Look, I the first thing to say is, of course, we should try to build closer relationships with the fastest growing parts of the world. Of course, we should try to leverage our historical relationships to put perhaps put more energy and effort into building bilateral relations with countries that are members of the Commonwealth. Mm. That's obvious. What I would also say, though, is that we could have done that within, you didn't have to leave the European Union In order to do that, that was a sensible foreign policy. And in a way, it's this false choice that during the 1960s, there was a heated debate in both parties about whether to join the then European community. And on the left of the Labour Party and on the right of the Conservative Party, there were sizable groups saying, no, we have the Commonwealth, so we should stick with the Commonwealth and leave Europe alone. Mm-hmm. And in a sense you hear the same now post-Brexit. Well, you know we may have left Europe behind, but we have the Commonwealth. For me, that's a false choice. You know, we can be part of Europe. We're obviously out of the EU and we're not going to revisit that anytime shortly. but we need engagement in Europe still in some form or other, whether bilaterally or. And we also need more engagement with former countries of the Commonwealth and countries outside the Commonwealth. You know, there is nothing wrong. In fact, there's lots of good things about, say, building stronger relationships with Japan or the Republic of Korea, but they're not either or. So our foreign policy, I think, has been, since the war has been bedeviled by two false choices. There have been those who say, look, we've either got to be Atlanticist or European. And in fact, we proved, albeit, as I say, sometimes awkwardly, that you can be both. And there are others who say you can be global or pro-Commonwealth or European. And again, that's another false choice. You can be both. And I think you know if you went to Delhi and said to you know, senior Indian politicians, is Britain a more influential player now that it's left the EU? I don't think they'd say yes. I think they'd say, actually, Britain was a very strong ally of India when it was in the EU. So th- those, those are false choices.
1: Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to ask an, another question on our relationship with the British Empire, public understandings of the British Empire, and how that affects UK foreign policy today. Are our limitations that we're finding today about understanding the British Empire, which, which more and more are coming out into the sort of public sphere, we're having these huge debates over whose statues we should keep and whose we shouldn't and really bringing to surface a lot of ideas about whether the British Empire was such a bad thing. And there's a lot of opinion polling and stuff around public attitudes towards the empire. Do you think that in a way policymakers are disincentivized from addressing the sort of true horror of imperialism because it is linked to this time when Britain was a great power? So when we're trying to develop a sense of patriotism and national story, I mean, Britain was at its sort of ascendancy in the world in terms of global influence when it had an empire. But obviously, for increasing numbers of the population and also for particularly post-colonial nations abroad, that's a really problematic history. So do you think there's a kind of contradiction there that policymakers really are struggling to address?
4: I think the much, I would say, more realistic and sharper look and understanding of empire that we now, we have today, is part of uh, this story of trying to work out where we sit in the world and and how it relates to our history. You know, if you say, in a nutshell, the struggle for the last 75 years has been to try to reconcile our past greatness, empire, with more straightened economic circumstance, uh, smaller relative uh, economy a uh, smaller uh, less power in the world then i think that that's become more intense i mean i think with empire you know all states have national myths and you know at the heart of our national myth and certainly when i was at school and university studying history it was still there was that empire was almost inevitable and it was britain's gift as it were to the world and essentially benign enterprise in which, in a sort of Kipling-esque way, (laughs) we delivered civilization to the world. And, you know, that persists. David Cameron was asked, um, I think, on Desert Island Discs when he was prime minister or leader of the Tory party, anyway, about his favourite books. I think he mentioned Our Island Story, which was, you know, a, a history textbook, you know, written at the beginning of the 20th century which basically extolled the sort of benign inevitability of yeah. the British empire what we're seeing now is a much more realistic understanding of empire and interestingly enough it's an understanding that commonwealth countries have had for a lot longer as the empire dissolved in the end at the end of the 50s and through the 60s lots of people in the uk assumed that these countries would naturally then align themselves economically and politically with the mother country. They were rather shocked when India, for example, decided to set up the non-aligned group, when African and Asian countries decided to set their own economic policy and trade policies and to trade with the US rather than with the UK. And we in, in this country, I think, have never quite accepted that but now we're, we're forced to see it. And I think it's praiseworthy that within that process, we are now taking a much harder look at how ruthless we were in the pursuit of our, our gains, how many of those people who have been sort of lauded as, um, as great uh, philanthropists in the UK, you know, uh, endowing our universities and museums and art galleries, actually had gathered their riches within the empire. So I think that's healthy, but it does rather undercut this idea, this rather romantic idea that we can sort of hop out of Europe and restore ourselves as the sort of, you know, as the model for all these former nations of empire within the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is a very useful grouping of nations from across the world and with different perspectives and political structures and it's very useful to be at the center of that but it's a it's a dialogue it's not an institution in which Britain any longer has or should have a sort of dominant role.
1: Yeah thank you I'd like to come back to the relationships that are kind of at the core of your book between UK and the US and UK and Europe. And just starting with the US, there's a phrase that sort of jumped out of me from the start of your book, where you say that often the special relationship has been more servile than special. And I just wondered, today, obviously, there's a lot of optimism about the Biden administration And the signs that they're sort of trying to re-engage with international institutions and and undo quite a lot of what Trump has done. But I wonder whether that's necessarily a universally positive story for Boris Johnson and and the UK government now. And and I just wondered if you had, from your sort of survey of past US-UK relationships, whether you had any lessons for Boris on how he should engage with the Biden administration.
4: As far as our relationship, our future relationship with the United States goes, there are two currents, as it were, flowing at the moment. The first is the sort of, in a way, the easy one, where it looks awkward for Boris Johnson, but Johnson, who was far too chummy with Donald Trump, has to find a way back and restore a strong relationship with Joe Biden. I think it may there may be some awkwardnesses there, but I don't think that's a fundamental problem for our foreign policy. We've had prime ministers and presidents before who didn't get on, but we've managed through, and we have, there is a structural nature to the special relationship, which is that, you know, that the relationship between our intelligence agencies, between our militaries, uh, our diplomats and policymakers, which basically survives the sort of, um, the bumps of personal uh, problems. And, uh, of course and Joe Biden is much more atlanticist than Trump and will want to i think you know even though he uh, you know thought it was a big mistake for us to leave the EU he'll want a good relationship what i think that we haven't understood or we haven't faced up to we, i think people have understood it we haven't faced up to during the entire period of the special relationship is how unequal that relationship is Right. And we, from the beginning, from Churchill, who popularized the phrase onwards, have invested this relationship with all sorts of emotional baggage. It's not just about you know high politics or foreign politics, it's about kith and kin, cultural alignment, shared history, language, and all the rest. And that's fine, except the Americans have actually taken a pretty hard-headed view of it and said, the brits are good allies they are very useful to us we can trust them and we respect them but the relationship is only as strong as it suits our national interest so what we've seen you know since 1945 is a whole slew of decisions taken in washington which you know have been damaging sometimes for us have been awkward for us but have been taken in Washington simply because the U.S. administration at the time has decided what the U.S. national interest is. If you take Suez, for example, where Macmillan and Eisenhower were strong allies, Britain and the U.S. had fought on the same side 10 years earlier. But when, when the whole thing got to the United Nations, the American ambassador to the United Nations voted with the Soviet ambassador to the United Nations against Britain Mm. to try to force Britain's retreat from Suez. So if you move forward and you go, even the relationship between Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, one of the strongest, you look at that, it took Ronald Reagan quite a time before he gave absolutely full-hearted support for Thatcher to retake the Falklands for the military expedition because a lot of people in the U.S. administration were pulling in the other direction, saying, look, whatever the special relationship with the U.K., we have to protect our relationships with Latin American nations. And, of course, when um, Reagan decided to invade Grenada, a Commonwealth nation with a queen as its head of state, he told Margaret Thatcher on the evening that it was about to happen. There was no discussion. And again, in negotiations with Gorbachev over nuclear weapons, Reagan took decisions or came close to taking decisions which would have affected our deterrent without reference to us. So, yes, the Americans value the relationship. They think it's particularly close. But as one diplomat said to me, very senior diplomat said to me during the Iraq, the second Iraq war, the thing is we have lots of special relationships. So Britain has one, the Americans have several. So that's, I think, the essential truth is one that we as Brits have never really wanted to own up to. And that gives the sense sometimes that actually it's a more servile relationship than special. If you go back to Tony Blair, who gave absolutely full-hearted support for George W. Bush and the war in Iraq, Bush was appreciative, but he didn't feel in return he had to give Blair any role in deciding how the war would be fought or indeed how the US and its allies would operate after the war. These were all decisions taken by the United States. I think that trend will accelerate, whether it's with Biden or another Republican president after Biden, because the US is taking less responsibility for the world. And so I think we'll be even more focused on its national interest so i our alliance with with the us will remain strong but it won't bear the weight that too many british policymakers expect it to bear
1: philip stevens thanks so much for joining us today
3: thank you
0: That's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you like what you heard, then please leave us a review and subscribe on whichever podcast app you're using, as this makes it much easier for others to find us.
1: We'll be back next week, actually, with some reaction to the UK's integrated review and a discussion of the future of UK foreign policy. And in the meantime, if you want to keep in touch with Chatham House research and events, then please visit our website at chathamhouse.org or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. Till next week, thanks very much for listening.